Hey, I'm Hypermobile, and if you're listening to this, I'm guessing you might be too. Welcome to Help, I'm Hypermobile. My name is Alex, and I'm your Hypermobile host. And when I'm not doing things like recording podcast episodes or working on other projects, I'm working with hypermobile patients as an osteopath in the UK, as well as remotely worldwide. This means that I've spent a lot of time thinking about the question I'm going to try to answer for you today, which is why are hypermobile people in pain? If you're part of the hypermobile community, maybe you're someone with an HEDS diagnosis or HSD, or you're on your diagnostic journey, you'll know that pain is a huge issue for hypermobile patients. In fact, 3.4% of the population who have generalized joint hypermobility, so again, that's not the same thing as HEDS or HSD, that's a separate thing, which just means you have some hypermobile joints throughout your body, they also have chronic widespread pain. If you want the study, please do check the the show notes. I will try to be putting those in there, okay? But back to the question, why are hypermobile people in pain? And before we go any further, I really want to address the importance of this question. Regardless of which healthcare provider or doctor you're working with, if they don't have a reasonable answer or any thoughts on this question, then they might not have a good basis for their clinical decision-making. Asking why questions, especially when you're a patient, is important. I personally think everyone should always have good reasons for why they're doing something, especially healthcare providers. Anyways, I want to stress that this episode today is going to be done in the style of an explain it like I'm five. This is a popular format. If you're on Reddit, you might have seen it on there. We can and will do later episodes where we dive deep into exactly what inflammation is and exactly what fibrosis is, and that's the technical term for scar tissue, but today we're just going to keep it really simple. My answer for why hypermobile people are in pain can be summed up in two words. Fibrosis, which is just the technical term for scar tissue, and inflammations. I'm specifically talking about dysregulated or inappropriate inflammatory processes. I want to stress that both fibrosis and inflammation are not inherently bad. They're actually really important physiological processes for a lot of different things. Uh, When you have an injury, you sometimes need a scar for the wound to heal. In fact, you often need a scar for the wound to heal. And when you injure tissue, a key part of the remodeling process involves inflammation. However, when either of those processes aren't done just right, things can get very problematic. Now, let's talk about scar tissue first. Scar tissue is dense. The best analogy is gristle in a cheap piece of steak. It is dysfunctional tissue. It doesn't squish, it doesn't stretch, and those are two of the really important things that we need tissue to do, and obviously those are very technical terms. To take a quote from the fantastic book, The Architecture of Living Human Fascia by Guimberto and Armstrong, A scar does not have any functional use. Its sole purpose is to plug the gap in the damaged tissue. This book and some of the research done by Dr. Carl Padre, among others, discuss differences in the quality of scar tissue. Not all scar tissue is created equally, and there are, in very basic terms, good and relatively functional scars and bad and relatively dysfunctional scars. Now, we can agree that when an injury happens, 
just like if you get a cut on your skin and you, you can injure any soft tissue structure, we're talking uh, connective tissue structures throughout the body, joint capsules, ligament, you can have a muscle tear, any of these soft tissue structures, that's what they're called, can get injured and they can scar sometimes. Now, contrary to what you might be thinking, the problem is generally not the scar itself. That's not the great the site of greatest risk of re-injury. In fact, the site of greatest risk of re-injury is typically the circumference of the scar. And this happens in part due to a difference in relative extensibility between the scar tissue. So, so again, think of that gristle in a cheap piece of steak. It's, it's hard, okay? So that's scar tissue and the surrounding uninjured tissue, which in the case of a hypermobile individual may in fact be hypermobile. So the uninjured tissue is stretchy. And then the next time that person goes, let's use the front of the shoulder, they go to take their arm back. The uninjured hypermobile tissue gets loaded mechanically until it reaches the interface of the scar tissue. And you can imagine that change in mechanical behavior of the scar tissue and the uninjured tissue, the uninjured hypermobile tissue, will lead to a tear at the interface between those two types of tissue. And this is why I think we get this exponential increase in symptoms over time. And although a lot of people with HEDS and HSD do have childhood pain, their symptoms do tend to get worse progressively over time and go from maybe once a month to once a week to once a day to constantly. So that's kind of my mechanical explanation for why we see that happen. Something I want to stress before we go any further is that scar tissue can never truly be broken down and made to magically disappear. So you'll see a lot of different uh, manual therapists of different kind and different treatment protocols out there talking about breaking down scar tissue. The truth is that a scar is a permanent change. However, you can certainly affect the behavior and the, the functionality of that scar tissue and its ability to tolerate mechanical load and we do this, or at least I do this in my clinical work, by trying to reduce the difference in relative extensibility or relative stretchiness between the stiff scar tissue and the stretchy uninjured tissue. Now, the only way that I know how to get any type of soft tissue structure to change is by subjecting it to microtrauma to induce a controlled inflammatory response. And by microtrauma, I'm talking about manual therapy, okay? So this will be, in, in my case, this is often uh, active release technique, which is one of my um, qualifications that I hold in addition to my osteopathic uh, qualification um, and other treatment interventions like, for example, instrument-assisted soft tissue mobilization in some cases. We are using some type of mechanical intervention to traumatize that tissue in an appropriate and safe way. And I do want to stress that, okay? And I'm doing this because I'm trying to get that tissue in a state of controlled and precise inflammation. And inflammation is something, again, it's neither good nor bad, it just is. And with hypermobile patients, it is extremely important to be very careful with what you do because they will often be people who have abnormal inflammatory responses or who... Um, have more issues in terms of a poor ability to tolerate a lot of types of manual therapy. So it's really important to be very careful and very precise with this patient population. However, when we think of tissue remodeling, if we use this idea of someone going to the gym, someone who is, let's say, normal connective tissue, and they go to the gym and they do their bicep curls, the next day you would expect them to feel a little bit sore. You'd expect their arms to feel sore. And that's an example 
of the inflammatory process that allows that type of muscle to remodel occurring and their tissue is having a positive change from that. So again, inflammation is not always a bad thing. It's a bad thing when it's in the wrong amounts at the wrong time in the wrong way. So we get that tissue in a state where it can change. Then, and again, this is this is not the deep dive that we will do into all of these different topics. This is just a brief outline of my thoughts and my clinical approach. We need to think, okay, so how can we get this tissue to heal better? And I look at a process called mechanotransduction. Mechanotransduction is a word that's been around for a while. And um, you can go onto a website called PubMed if you want to, if, if you're a healthcare person, of course, you're going to know what PubMed is. Um, but you're welcome to go research this and take a look into it because I think it's something that's not discussed enough. And there's a very, um, there's a, a paper with a very cute title, mechanotransduction, use the force, bracket is bracket. Anyways, mechanotransduction can be summed up as how cells sense physical forces and translate them into biochemical and biological responses. So what this what we're talking about here is how cells can be affected physically or, or mechanically. So when we're looking at getting tissue in that state where it can change, it's really important that we feed it information on how to how to heal better, how to remodel better. With hypermobile individuals in particular, what I see is this seemingly inescapable injury inflammation, injury inflammation, this cycle of failed healing outcomes. And it's very important to find a way to disrupt it in order to start to achieve a better healing outcome. And taking advantage of a process called mechanotransduction is how I think, um, is it's the framework through which I think of when I'm prescribing my exercises and when I'm doing that again in a very precise way. Because tissue can change. Our bodies are more plastic than we realize. They're more changeable than we realize. But you have to be doing it in the right way and feeding it the right information. And, and the big thing, again, I want to stress, I don't have all the answers. I'm, you know, I just have my clinical perspective. But I think it's so important to think about those why questions and to challenge yourself, especially if you are a healthcare provider. I think it's always important to say, why am I doing this? Why am I giving this exercise? And for me, it's um, important, especially that I do have a physiological rationale. So not just looking at research, not just looking at what other people are doing, but looking at the physiology that underlies the clinical decisions that I'm making and thinking, okay, does that make sense in the context of physiology? Because as we know, um, a lot of studies, especially in this field, are very small sample sizes. So again, we're getting like studies of, you know, not that many people. And often there are issues with the studies themselves. So just because a study says something is good doesn't necessarily mean it's good. And I think that adding in a, a physiological um, argument for why you're making a clinical decision can always just help to ensure that there's a really good foundational reason behind why you're doing something. Anyways... We've talked about scar tissue and we've talked about injury and with scar tissue, before we move on, something that it's important to really think about is the relationship of scar tissue at a site of injury to the rest of the body. As we talked about earlier, scar tissue is hard. It doesn't squish. And if you imagine walking with a stone in your shoe, that's uncomfortable because the stone is exerting pressure on the essentially some of the nerves in the bottom of your foot it's squishing things which is painful being poked is painful and that's what scar tissue can do sometimes when it's near for example a peripheral nerve 
We can also have issues, of course, where scar tissue starts to pull on nearby sensitive structures. And the term that's used for that is adhesions, which is the, describes some of the relationship that we see between a scar and the structures that it interfaces with or that are near it. Anyways, what we want to think about is the relationship not only of the scar to the tissue that immediately contacts it, but to the tissue that's around it and how that tissue is moving. And there's a very particularly sensitive type of tissue that we want to consider, and that is peripheral nerves. And when you hear someone talk about the median nerve or the sciatic nerve, when you hear the word nerve, I want you to think connective tissue. Without getting into detail, there are three layers of connective tissue in a peripheral nerve. There's the endoneurium, the perineurium, and the epineurium. And I know we said we were going to keep explaining like I'm five, but this stuff is technical and we, we need to acknowledge the science here. And I, I hope I'm making it easier for you to understand. But anyways, when you hear nerve, think connective tissue because nerves have a connective tissue component. And to explain it in a really simple way, imagine if you have a wire and you have a, a wrapping around it, you know, like any any um chargers, like your phone charging cable in your home. That's a perfect example. You have the wire on the inside and the plastic wrapping on the outside. And let's pretend like the plastic wrapping is connective tissue. Now it's important to note that within that outer layer of connective tissue on the nerve, there are little baby nerves called the nervi nervorum. So nerves are so sensitive, they have nerves. So again, here we're still talking about mechanical things. We're talking about how different structures and how they relate to each other and how scar tissue can affect those structures. But it's important to realize that connective tissue is not just on either side of a muscle, at like, you know, the tendon where it connects to the bone. Connective tissue is within and throughout and around many, if not most, structures in your body. Now, moving on to the other word, which was inflammation. Inflammation is a process which, again, is involved in so many things. And this is where we're going to shift gears because we've talked about scar tissue and the inflammation that follows from that re-injury and pain due to re-injury from a mechanical perspective. But what we want to do now is think about inflammation from a systemic perspective. So we're talking not just about like, for example, uh, ankle sprain or a knee dislocation. We're talking about altered inflammatory markers, which are going to affect how someone is feeling. And the whole mechanical versus systemic thing is something you're going to hear me reference a lot when discussing this stuff, because HEDS and HSD are, are conditions involving, as I just said, discrete injuries, for example, tearing a muscle or injuring a joint and systemic dysfunction. And this is evidenced, for example, by really common symptoms like skin rashes or sensitivity, IBS-like symptoms, including, for example, chronic diarrhea, gut pain, and um, there, if you could go through every system, cardiovascular symptoms, respiratory symptoms, etc. And there you can see the different ways where we start to have some systemic uh, dysfunction. And this is, I think, a big trick is considering the interaction between the mechanical issues and the systemic issues. And one of the single most important things to think about from an inflammatory perspective are mast cells. Now, I want to stress that a lot of this science is very new. And um, we're still having some ongoing developments in terms of defining diagnostic criteria for certain things. And this is why partially that the diagnostic process is such a problem right now, because there are a lot of issues going on in terms of exactly... Uh, of the medical community figure on exactly what a muscle activation syndrome is and exactly how that's going to be diagnosed, etc. Um, however, what we can say is that mast cells are a thing, where, which we seem to see have issues at a much higher rate in patients who have HEDS. In fact, 
A 2020 study titled Utilization of the 2017 Diagnostic Criteria for HEDS by the Toronto Good Hope Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome Clinic, a retrospective review, long title, by McGillis et al. found that approximately 25% of patients uh, with HEDS also have MCAS. And again, that's one study, okay? So I'm not saying that that statistic is necessarily right. That's just what one study found. But it's interesting in that it certainly does highlight the relationship between mast cell issues and hypermobile connective tissue, or at least HEDS, based on that study. Now, what are mast cells? I think of mast cells like the first responders of your immune system. So let's say that you get, for example, a mosquito bite, or you eat a food that irritates your gut. The first immune cells on the scene of the, you know, at the scene of the accident or the crime or whatever, it's going to be your mast cells. Uh, Think of it like if you call for an ambulance, the mast cell is the ambulance, okay? Now, the problem that we see sometimes in people who are hypermobile is that instead of calling for just one ambulance, they end up having all of the ambulances arrive, all the police cars, all of the, I don't know, helivax and whatever, they get an over-response of mast cells or of the behavior of the mast cells. And again, this gets very, very nuanced, but we have an inappropriate response. And the problem with this is that mast cells dump different types of irritants. And one of the most famous and well-known irritants that mast cells dump is something called histamine. And you might be familiar with histamine. Uh, right now we're kind of in allergy season where everyone's starting to take antihistamines and have different issues with things like that. But histamine irritates tissues and your, your body is sending that um, those mast cells to the site of that injury because it's, it's trying to help you. It's saying, hey, there's something here which is very which we feel is a threat. We have to mount a response. Let's go mast cells, let's go. But they just, they behave weirdly. And I do want to stress, you can have things like histamine intolerance. Please understand, I'm just trying to keep this simple. But um, we see altered behavior when it comes to an inflammatory perspective. It's important to understand that histamine is really weird. It's half hormone, half neurotransmitter. It's technically called an autocoid and it does a lot of things and it will have its own episode. Don't worry. It honestly probably was going to need like three episodes, but we'll try and do it in one. But in simple terms, just think of it as an irritant. And when it is dumped at the scene of a tissue and the degranulation process is actually beautiful. Um, And when I say dumping, I'm talking about degranulating. You can go on YouTube and watch videos of mast cells degranulating. And it's like these little water balloons rupture and just dump their little like inflammatory water um, wherever they are degranulating. That's what causes, for example, with that mosquito bite, that redness and that swelling. It's it's inflammation. It's it's irritation. Now, in people who have normal connective tissue or who don't, I should say, have issues with mast cells or um, histamine intolerance or sensitivity, they have a normal response. So these are the people who will get a mosquito bite and have a little bit of a reaction, but not too much, and it'll be gone in a few days, and that's all good. Whereas the people with HEDS, for example, will often have things like, let's use the mosquito bite analogy again, where they get a mosquito bite, but it'll last for like weeks and be 10 centimeters in diameter and just very obviously be an over response. So part of the problem is the response. But the other part of the problem is an issue often with something called diamine oxidase. And diamine oxidase is the enzyme that cleans up the mess that the mast cells leave behind. So it mops up the excess histamine, gets rid of all of it so your body can go back to its normal state. However, 
when you have too much activity or from mast cells or sensitivity to histamine combined with less diamine oxidase, we can start to have this very problematic, inappropriate inflammatory response. So what do we do about this inflammation issue that we're having? I like to look at things like, for example, very strategic uh, lifestyle changes. So this can be, for example, things like um, improving someone's health when it comes to their their period-related health. That can be a huge issue, which can involve inflammation. Periods are inherently inflammatory events, and we want to make sure that that period is happening in a way which is as healthy as possible. Um, quick note, periods should not be excessively painful. They should not have you on the floor, like, in agony that's not normal i just this is a public service announcement i wish i'd had this public service announcement when i was younger but here it is for you today and also have issues with things like weird um responses to food so for example a really common thing is sometimes very intense gut pain um sometimes like cramping from eating these will often be patients who've tried every diet under the sun um every nutritional strategy they've tried things like vegetarianism pescatarianism they've tried to avoid gluten they've tried to avoid dairy they've tried intermittent fasting they've tried ketogenic diet they've, they've tried it all and I can say this as someone who's personally tried it all and um, sometimes what ends up helping them is thinking a little bit about histamine content in foods for example and there are things additionally like diamine oxidase supplements and there are even some uh, drugs that are appropriate for some patients and again I'm not a medical doctor I'm not a pharmacist this is for informational purposes only but there are medications that are in the class of mast cell stabilizers like for example sodium chromalin which do seem to help some patients so again regardless of whether we're talking scar tissue or inflammation it's important to think of why those processes are happening why they are causing the symptoms in a specific patient and what can be done about them now i want to stress that the journey to fixing these types of injuries and these issues with inflammation and issues with fibrosis it, it can be long certainly and it can be challenging and it really I, again i really want to stress it depends on the patient there are some patients who have more issues with the muscle and joint symptoms and there are some patients where all of their symptoms relate to inappropriate inflammatory responses and i haven't even gone into dysautonomia today and i'm, I'm not going to touch on that in this episode but um, there are patients who present with these issues in different ways, and that's why it's essential, more than anything, that the treatment plan is tailored to the individual patient and their individual symptoms. Regardless of the, the clinical rationale, it has to be bespoke for the patient who is hypermobile, just because although I think almost every, or I'm just going to say every patient I work with who's hypermobile has issues with fibrosis and inflammation, they all have these issues in their own way. And I call it variations on a theme where the patients, they all have different issues with fibrosis and inappropriate inflammation, but some of them have more gut issues. Some of them have more uh, period issues. Some of them have more muscle and joint pain, etc. So it really depends on the individual patient. I hope you've enjoyed my explanation of why I think hypermobile people are in pain. Obviously, this episode cannot possibly cover every reason. That would take hours and hours to get through. But I think that fibrosis and inflammation do play a big role in a lot of presentations in patients in this patient population. And hopefully it's given you something to think about and maybe even something to talk with your healthcare provider about. And please, at your next appointment, if time allows, ask them why are hypermobile people in pain? I think it's something we need to talk more about. 